0: Welcome into another episode of the Atzen Audibles podcast. I'm your host Eric Scopel. Matt Prem is off this week. He's uh, moving into a new residence, moving across town in Eugene. Big ups to the Prem family this week for for the move and for getting situated. Um, so he is off basically the entire week and. We would not go. We would not go a full week without doing a mailbag episode. And because I don't like doing this entirely by myself, I guess maybe I have like I guess like personal stage fright of just like what I might say without uh, like with I guess an uninterrupted monologue setting. So we brought on uh, our other Duck Territory staffer, full time recruiting guy, Kevin Wade. Kevin, thanks for joining us on this one. And we are going to uh, run through some questions from fans, but. First, I thought we'd just start with just a general, like, Kevin, you haven't been on a mailbag for a minute, but uh, I, I just thought, let's talk really quickly before we jump into questions just about this class um, in 2021. Obviously, Matt and I talked about this past couple of weeks, but we haven't had a chance to really have Kevin on here. Kind of what, sum this up in a, in a couple sentences, a couple thoughts, what, what, what do you kind of stands out with this class before we jump into some questions about some other stuff? It is going to be all recruiting related today on the show, so get ready for that.
1: Yeah, the, the 2021 class is um, – it, it is just top to bottom very, very good. I think that's where you really have to look at it and say, oh, this is a very solid class from the first prospect to the last prospect. Um, it just It's very highly ranked at almost every position. Um, and and you, you just say, like, this is the best class in 247 composite history without a five-star – but it's still the number six class in the nation, which I think just tells you the, the group of talent is so strong as a whole, even if there's not that true top-end guy. But really, three of the guys are in the top 40. So, like, I mean, is there a huge difference between number 32, which is the last five-star, and 35, 39, and 40? To me, not really,
0: but it's such a good class. Just, you, know who, you know who it matters to, though, is our subscribers on deck territory who are still very unhappy with a couple of our uh, five-star snubs. Um, I mean, K- Kingsley <laughs> Sumataya is a, is a
1: five-star on two four seven own rankings, and I think uh, you can't dispute that, though. Some other rankings do have him a bit lower.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's one of the few times where we have a guy who's a five-star. We don't get credit for that, though. We only, get, we, we only lack credit for uh, not having Troy Franklin or Ty Thompson five-stars. Um, but I digress and actually let's start here about five stars, Matt. Uh, Kevin just ran through a good stat there of just this being a class without that five star, um, a a really, really highly regarded class without it, but there is still the five star elephant in the room, if you will. And, uh, this first question addresses that. And I think you kind of have to, Kevin and I are talking about this off air, trying to figure out how to like organize this show. It's like the most notable biggest kind of like hot topic for Oregon recruiting right now is can they land this elite recruit so the first question we're going to start with comes from at Vegas duck zero six five seven any chance they get JTT on campus for a visit before he makes a decision um, JTT obviously being JT to Malau um, Kevin you're better on these Polynesian names how am I doing there because I want, I want yeah, you that, per- that's spot on okay cool I'll spot take on. it I take it good I never know. Sometimes I die. sometimes the pronunciation comes in and out, um, but th- th- I think this is a place to start. Oregon, if they, again, if they are to land a five-star based upon where players are ranked now, and there could be some reshuffling, I think, at some point again. Or, or, or actually, Kevin, are we, are we done with rankings? this like in frozen?
1: Actually, no. Um, but in Oregon's sense, it, it it's pretty much done. Uh, there might be with California looking to play, Oregon's still trying to figure out the playing. Washington um, is now gonna looks like they're gonna play here in the next few weeks for high school football. Um, there might be some changes, but don't expect a guy to go dramatically up. And then you look at Oregon's top three guys in the class, Kingsley, uh, Troy, and Ty, and then even throw like a Dante. Thornton in there as well. They've already played. They're already on campus, so their ranking is going to change. So, so maybe if ESPN just decides, like, yeah, yeah, Kingsley, we're going to throw him way up there. Maybe he does get that uh, composite five star status. But as of right now, the rankings are pretty much set. Though a guy that actually plays this season could see his ranking go up. But for Oregon, none of those guys really matter because most of those are well, actually they all are already on campuses, early enrollees. All
0: right, let's talk JTT. Kevin, before we jump into the rest of this, just because again, like this, this is the lone five star. Like we kind of established a second ago, that Oregon could land or add to this class. He's not just any five star; he's the number one rated player by two four seven. I think he's number two in the composite behind Corey Foreman. But this is this is an elite elite guy, and I, I we talked about this last week when we were running through just how this kind of class impacts Oregon short term, long term, and the one position group they didn't really address very well, or, or in very much, at least not as much as the other positions was defensive line and getting a guy like JTT on the team would sure that up. And I think I said, if they they're a JTT addition from this class literally being like an A plus almost across the board. So what, 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 what have you heard? What's the word with JTT? I know he's not expected to sign or make a a decision in the month of February, How are we, I guess, Kevin, like, are we hearing that he might try to make it on campus? And, and I guess, what what do we know kind of big picture with, with what's going on with him?
1: So the on-campus stuff really comes down to the NCAA and what they're going to allow right now. There's been a dead period. Um, basically it's going to stretch at least a full year now. Uh, they put it in place March 14th last year. Um, and right now it's set to expire on April 15th. The NCAA hasn't said what they're going to do. Uh, to at the end of that April 15th dead period, are they gonna make it a quiet period or are they gonna open up recruiting or are they gonna just extend the dead period further? Um, a quiet period means prospects can come on campus unofficially, but they're allowed to meet with staff on campus, tour facilities. Right now during the dead period, prospects can visit on their own, but they can't interact with coaches. They can't go to football facilities. Even if they're publicly open buildings, it's just still not what's supposed to happen. So. Um, that's kind of the first step. A lot of people believe the NCAA is going to allow those visits, uh, those unofficial, quiet period visits, and then JT can go ahead and take the trips he wants to. He's already been to Oregon. He's already been to Washington. He's already been to USC. About three years ago, he went to go visit Alabama unofficially, and he hasn't been to Ohio State in his top five. I could see Ohio State and Alabama and Oregon being the schools that he goes to check out one more time. Um, Oregon being that he came for a game, uh, but he never really got the one-on-one experience. I know the staff does a great job when he was on campus um, of making him feel like he was a priority, which he absolutely is, but there's a huge difference of visiting for a game day and then visiting for a purpose-built recruiting trip. Uh, I do believe that Oregon could get him on campus. It's just going to matter what happens with the NCAA. When does he schedule his other trips? and, And just overall, How do things develop in the next few weeks? Oregon just brought in a new defensive coordinator, which I think is going to be very important uh, to see how Tim DeRuiter sells JT on what Oregon has to offer and Oregon's going to do defensively. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest thing I'm watching is what is that relationship building? Joe Salovea has taken the lead. Mario Crisball is very invested in this and basically is all of Oregon's staff. I'm just curious how does DeRuiter play a factor into this. And I think he could bring a very positive factor to Oregon's recruitment of the number one prospect on two, four, seven sports.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, I I'm with you in terms of, I wonder Deruder's impacts. I mean, do we know if we don't have to jump too far down this one? Cause I know we want to get to the rest of the questions here, but do we know if DeRuiter had much of a relationship with JTT prior when he was, I mean, he was coaching in the conference at Cal. I'd imagine that they at least have some sort of a relationship um, do we do we know if there's much one there, Kevin, or or if that uh, is pre-existing Cal
1: hasn't really been a, a player in that recruitment? Um, but I, I do think now there definitely is going to be a relationship built, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely imperative, and so it, it's it's something to watch as Oregon's involvement in this recruitment plays on through the next few months. But as I said earlier, I don't expect any decision to be made on from JT's point of view until we hear what the NCAA does with that visit period, because I think in in some ways it might actually benefit Oregon. If he's not able to make those visits, he'd have to go make some very unofficial visits if there's still a dead period in play. Um, And, you know, I I think that could benefit Oregon just because, well, he's seen what the ducks have to offer. It's closer to home. Um, And he has some friends on the roster because he was seven on seven teammates with Keith Brown and Troy Franklin.
0: You just we just talked about a recent Oregon hire in Tim Deruder, and this maybe segues into the second question here from at Def Ducks. What exactly does a recruiting director do? And the reason I bring that up is well, we haven't officially confirmed this report, and by the time you listen to this on Wednesday, maybe we will have. But um, Cody Wadial, a former Oregon assistant grad assistant, I should say, has been kind of linked to taking over as the recruiting director at Oregon. Um, that would be a change from the past couple of years if it's reshuffled that recruiting room quite a bit, actually, over the last six or so months. Um, Kevin, let's let's uh, I'll throw this one to you and kind of give you the the floor for a minute or so. What kind of run through some of the responsibilities that the recruiting director does and kind of maybe and, and maybe kind of note sort of what some of the staff changes have been like during that kind of last couple months.
1: Yeah, so a recruiting director, I think, is is a position that you, used to just be um, thrown as a title to an assistant coach. But you're right. now seeing more and more programs go ahead and hire just extensive recruiting staffs. And I think the director of player personnel and the director of recruiting really have a major stake in, one, which players are a school going to target – They work with the high school coaches to get players on the phone lined up maybe before their coaches are able to just directly call them. They work with high school coaches to kind of learn about players, maybe do some of the in-depth digging on finding out what is a player like? How does he fit into the culture? what does he like at practice? And then giving the film, prepping the film uh, to the coaches so then they can make a further analysis of are you going to offer this player? And maybe once the offer has been extended, they're the guys that – that really do a lot of the job of keeping the relationship strong, answering any questions a player might have, because, you know, coaches also have to worry about full-time coaching uh, a team. I mean, yes, they recruit and yes, they play a big part in it, but there's so much more of just when the visits are going on, coaches are on the field worrying about the game and the recruiting staff and really director of recruiting leads, this manages, okay, who is coming in for the visit weekend? Who is, where are they staying? What are they going to be doing? Putting together that schedule, lining up all the staffs, and then during the game, making sure that those prospects have everything they want answered, taken care of, could possibly need within the rules um, allowed. And so I think that's, it. it's a huge encompassing role, but it's a very important one because you can't just leave it up to a coaching staff who has to also worry about winning games. So it's a it's becoming a lot more common. and I mean, Oregon in the past few years has had a director of recruiting, assistant director of recruiting, director of player personnel, director of high school relations. Um, Washington State, I know this is a different program. They just hired a director of transfer recruiting. So you're just going to see <laughs> these er, these positions just expand. And I expect Oregon to do that. I, they just recently promoted their director of high school relations, Don Johnson, to the director of player personnel role. That was formerly held by Thomas Lorenz, a longtime Oregon staffer. Um, so it's, that's one of the big changes. They've seen the director of recruiting leave, but as you noted, it sounds like they're going to be, uh, hiring Cody Whittier to fill that position. Um, and, and I know people can get concerned, oh no, there's a lot of turnover. It's really common in these roles because you're bringing guys in that might have d- different relationships across the country than you previously had. They can open new doors for you and they're also trying to move up the ladder themselves and trying to find new positions that they might work. So if a guy's only there for two, to three years, it's not alarming. I know some people get a little concerned. Well, I thought that guy did a great job. Well, you know what? Knowing Mario Cristobal and his focus on recruiting, they're going to bring in someone just as good, if not better, because they're constantly elevating the standard. And as Oregon has better recruiting classes, better people want to come work at Oregon.
0: Third question, actually, I think addresses this again. Man, our transitions have been perfect here. I don't know if Kevin's serving these up for me or if it's just kind of been lucky. But here's the third one from at Natfod: Do you think we are in danger of USC passing us in recruiting with some of our coaching turnover? The national recruiting media seems to be very high on them, them being the Trojans. Oregon did finish ahead of the Trojans for what? This is their third straight year as Pac-12 quote-unquote recruiting champions. I know they don't give out any trophies or awards, but that's just the case based upon the 247 sports composite rankings. I, I um, think
1: they need to hang a banner. I think just like <laughs> hang a recruiting <laughs> champions banner in Austin, I think. <laughs> I'd love to see it.
0: Yeah, put it. yeah, I guess put it somewhere um, in the HTC maybe. I don't know. That's a, that could be kind of a funny discussion for other time. Um, but, yeah, the, so I think – but it is a good question in that Oregon had really dominated USC – especially in the 2020 class. USC signed a really, really, for for, them, for their standard, probably the worst recruiting class ever, at least since we've been doing this at 247. Like 2001, 2002, I think was the first year they started doing these kind of online recruiting databases with rankings. And 2020 was just atrocious for USC. They, they had hardly any of these blue-chip four- or five-star five recruits. But 2021 did see the reemergence of USC, and in part because of Dante Williams, who was on Oregon staff previously, He goes over there, finishes, I think, third nationally in the recruiting rankings. From a coach perspective, he's a top guy in the Pac-12. Oregon does hold off the Trojans, we think. And the one caveat, I think, being if JTT were to somehow sign with USC, which I don't think is the expectation really at all right now, but if that were to happen, they would jump Oregon in the rankings. So kind of more JTT watch kind of news to keep an eye on in terms of Oregon potentially giving up the supremacy there. Again, I don't think that happens, but <clears throat> you think, what do you think big picture here? Um, again, Oregon signs the program best class in 2021. It feels kind of like a weird time to be, you know, overly concerned. Like, the sky's not falling. If anything, the Ducks are, are, are flying higher than ever before. But are, are we concerned with USC potentially catching them? And, and like, I guess is tw- we saw 2021 kind of the Ducks and Trojans battling all, all cycle kind of for supremacy. Do we think 2022, in part because of USC off to a nice start, a lot of good players in SoCal, being a year where maybe the Trojans do overtake the Ducks in recruiting?
1: Uh, I, I think it's fairly possible just because USC has a really good start. I mean, notably, they have the number three prospect in the nation, Damani Jackson, uh, out of modern day, already committed. So that's a, a huge recruiting win for them early in 2022 um i think usc's strength right now is really because they're playing catch-up in to oregon i mean the 2020 class just absolutely put usc into a we need to recruit now and we need to win recruiting battles now they went out hired as we were just talking about support staffers they went out and hired a ridiculous amount of support staffers that they're still adding to i mean their recruiting room has to be at least a dozen people deep with a various number of director roles um, because they need to play catch up to Oregon because Oregon has just done it at a higher level the past few years. And Dante Williams does a great job recruiting. You have to give him credit there. But I, I think Oregon is also kind of moving into what we could maybe call phase two or even phase three of their recruiting strategy and really push the envelope nationally nationally. Um, you look at this 2021 class that USC signed, they they signed the number one player in the nation, Corey Foreman, and they signed other top players from California, but they really haven't gone nationally and and done it at that same high level. Most of their top prospects are from California, which Oregon did really well in 2019. So kind of a two-year delay there. Uh, Now Oregon is going out and getting top players from pretty much all over the country. I mean, they got the top player in. I think it's seven different states and JTT could make it eight different states. So I, I think there is some concern that, okay, USC is doing a high level and there's gonna be some really difficult battles coming down the stretch of this 2022 class. And I think it will there it could be long-term consequences on some of those battles, but I think Oregon has done such a great job of establishing kind of running the West and now they're moving into their national strategy where I think long-term that sets Oregon up for success. USC can obviously catch up there, but I really like how Oregon has kind of shifted into, they're going to compete nationally where USC is going to right now compete regionally and maybe be in some national conversations though, not most.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that's going to be interesting to see is how much success Oregon can continue to have in Southern California. Um, Keith Hayward was a coach who had great connections there. Obviously, Dante Williams was as well. In two in two years, they basically lost their top LA guys, their top two. Um, can they continue to win some of those battles? How competitive do those battles become with USC? Um, and and if again, I think the thing which Kevin just brought up, which is a great point, is Oregon is recruiting nationally, and they've also established really really strong pipelines in other areas regionally. You look at what they've done in Utah the last couple of cycles, what they've done in Arizona, especially in 2021. Um, Potential in the state of Oregon and even the state of Washington, I think in 2022, because it's a pretty strong class, especially in the state of Oregon, and I guess we'll include Tobias Merriweather right over the bridge um, in Washington to like, if, if they can just win these kind of close regional battles, I think they'll set themselves up to be in a pretty good spot, even if they maybe don't win, all the, all the Southern California battles, because it's always going to be harder to win down there. Um, and especially, I think, during a pandemic where people just maybe don't want to go too far from home because time with family, you know, it becomes kind of fleeting. And you get I mean this, I think, put a lot of things in perspective. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see in 22 kind of what Oregon and, and, and USC are able to do in Southern California. Can Oregon continue to win some of those battles? And if not, where else do they look? How does that change things?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think you brought it up with um, some of those relationships with recruiters, I think kind of goes back to the last question about relationships and development. And I think, I mean, Hayward and Dante did a great job when they were at Oregon developing relationships, whether it be at modern day uh, with some of the various seven on seven teams, but uh, the current staff has done a really good job at maintaining those relationships with the top programs. And I mean. You saw Oregon go in without Dante, and with Keith still on the staff, but go sign Jalen Davies out of Mater Dei, uh, probably the biggest pipeline in Southern California right now. Um, and I think Oregon's going to be competing for guys at Mater Day for a long time just because of what the Ducks have done there and consistently shown, especially with players from Modern Day seeing playing
0: time. All right, next up a question from at Chiba how realistic of a shot do the Ducks have at the at 2022, five stars thereafter? Keon Sab, NA White, t- got him to butcher this one. Teteoria McMillan. Just call him T Mac. T Mac and Malik Murphy come to mind. Those are some of the names uh, mentioned here by Chiba. Um Oregon, as we've established earlier in the show, has yet to land a five-star in the 2021 cycle. They signed three for that. That's the program best in 2020. Um 2022. And I think we do need to spend some time. And we're the last couple questions on the show, we'll we'll focus on this class because we are it's how quickly this goes. Last week was the final signing period in 2021. Again, it doesn't mean they are done adding, they can, in theory, still make some additions. But you got to start, you know, you you got to turn the page. And now we're looking at 2022. And Oregon has, I think, a nice start here with three four star prospects in the class right now. Um, Grayson Holt in the defensive end and Marion Winston, a linebacker from and a a legacy recruit, basically with his brother um, being at Oregon Lamar a couple of years ago. And then Andre Dollar, a tight end out of Oklahoma. Um, A strong start with those three guys, whenever you can, you know, four, you know, four-star recruits, that's, that's what you're looking to get. And those are the type of caliber kids, but five stars, a different animal. And like I said, a second ago, Oregon yet to really lock anyone down in 2021 there, even though we think there's a lot of like pseudo five stars, borderline five stars, people that are rated five stars on, a service or two they certainly have a couple of those but what do you think in 2022 kevin i mean what what, what maybe first off what is who who does oregon it's like what's if, if you pick one five star who oregon is most likely to sign like who do they have the best chance at right now and then maybe we'll run through a couple of the names that uh, chiba listed
1: to mcmillan is kind of the the guy that i would uh focus on right now i mean he's had oregon as one of his top three to five schools. I mean, he doesn't have, officially have a list, but Oregon has always been a high school for him just because of who Oregon is. But I think also just seeing what Oregon has done offensively and what they're continuing to do offensively, I think gives the Ducks uh, a good chance uh, in that battle. That would be the guy I'd focus on right now. I think you just kind of look, and there, there aren't a ton of West Coast five stars in this class. There may be more than other years um, but there, there aren't a ton, and you've already seen one just recently. Um, really, Brown commit to Oklahoma out of state, which is, is rough for the Pac 12, but that's an entirely separate topic. Um, Malik Murphy, long interest in Oregon. Uh, I'd be curious to see where that recruitment goes, especially uh, how Oregon does in that. I know that he's got interest in Ohio State, Michigan. He might want to stay. Uh, in LA, I don't think it would be at USC, but it'd be at UCLA. I think Oregon will do a good, will do a really good job and be one of the final teams for Malik Murphy. Um, I think a lot of it also depends on what happens this spring in Oregon's own quarterback battle, which again is another topic. But some schools are able to go sign elite quarterback after elite quarterback, uh, but players also look at a very crowded quarterback room. And let's say Ty Thompson isn't the guy this year, but he competes that might be just a sign of things to come. And I mean, Malik Murphy's a very talented quarterback, but quarterbacks do look at this, especially with the number of quarterbacks that have transferred. So that's just something to to watch there. Um, It's just going to be a case of how does this class at the end shake up? And I think there are guys that could end up moving to five-star status. I've already put in my crystal ball prediction uh, for Tobias Merriweather. I think he's a top 70 type guy right now nationally, but I, I think he will move up. I mean, he looked Really, really good at a seven-on-seven seven this past weekend down in Arizona. And I think uh, once Washington gets to play football, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by him. And if his ranking keeps climbing, don't don't be shocked there.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see with, with some of this. I think that sometimes we measure these classes by five stars. And like we established earlier with, with the 2021 class for Oregon, I think a lot of times that's probably not fair. I mean, the depth and totality of a class can kind of overcome maybe missing on that headliner guy and this class I think in 2021 has three or four or five players that can quote unquote be the headliner guy and I wouldn't be surprised if 2022 is, is like that as well uh, let's keep it moving here fifth question from at sc0000 how many players is Oregon going to take next season this is a recruiting question clearly talking about the 2022 class Oregon has landed I believe the number is 23 signees, right, Kevin? Yeah, 23. 21. That's a pretty – that's about kind of what you, you hit most years. I think the thing that gets really funky when we look at 2022 and just basically roster management, roster building, player acquisition is a term Cristobal uses a lot for the next few years is what does the NCAA do with the scholarship – restrictions um these these classes look quite different than we thought they would because they've frozen the windows um will we get to a point here where you're really having to like legitimately like kind of push guys out the door in a couple of years here um do we think some of that comes into play when you're looking at the number you know looking at next year's recruiting class like Could this be a thing where Oregon would like to sign again? Maybe 2020, you know, 20 to 25 is kind of the magic number, maybe a little above 25 in in special years, maybe a little bit below in others. But like if 20, let's say 23, which they signed in 2021 is like the magic number. Is that a number that they can really hit in 2022, given what's going on from a scholarship numbers perspective? And I know Kevin tracks this really well. We've got a tracker on duckterritor.com. We always have it pinned to our message board of, the scholarship breakdown on the for the roster. Kevin, look, taking a look at that, knowing what you know about, the, the, I guess, the cycle in 2022, do you have a number in your head? And kind of could this get wonky because of what I just outlined a second ago with just kind of the, the numbers being weird because of, of COVID? It's absolutely going
1: to get wonky, but it's going to be wonky for everyone in college football. And once again, uh, it, it, it will boil down to what does the NCAA do? Uh, Coaches are asking for relief because across college football, people know that, yes, we get to use 25 counters, but looking at scholarship charts, if we're only allowed 85 and every single, we're not going to have seniors next year in 2021 because everybody gets to be a super junior is essentially what we're calling it. Just They get a second junior year, so there will be no seniors. Will some of those guys decide, hey, I'm going to move on either to the NFL or just with on with my life after getting a degree yeah but will someone return absolutely and schools might not be able to to take that extra scholarship on and there is just going to be a whole issue but you look at oregon right now they have seven guys that are going to be the super seniors who don't count against the scholarship chart but then they have 10 of these super juniors who could come back for 2022 um and and that just dramatically cuts into the class and then that doesn't even talk about the super sophomores who I think by 2022, Cam McCormick, who technically, because of the years he was given, is going to be like a seventh-year junior in 2022. So there's just going to be a lot of guys that the NCAA is just going to have to say, all right, well, we're going to give you some roster relief, Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. I think the class will be somewhere between 15 and 22. Uh, It just all depends on, one, what happens this spring. I think that should give us a better idea because Oregon's kind of maxed out their... Uh, signees, they can really only add two more to the 2021 class with the amount of 25 counters, um, and they're right on that 85 scholarship mark. So anyone else who really leaves right now just kind of opens up a future spot for the 2022 class. I think Oregon over the next this spring and after next season, you'll get a good idea of how many players decide, hey, I'm going to go transfer, play somewhere else, or just decide like, hey, I'm done playing football. I'm going to go on with the rest of my life, got my degree in hand, or go into the NFL. And that's the big question. Just looking at the the super sophomores, the NFL-eligible guys following the 2021 season, the, there's going to be a few. And if some guys have breakout seasons, I mean, we already know Kayvon Thibodeau uh, is likely headed to the NFL. Uh, Mikhail Wright's another guy that I, I think if he has just as good a season, he'll be NFL-bound. But then what happens to guys like, Verona McKinley, Jamal Hill, Devin Williams, Micah Pittman, Mace Tyler Funa. Shuck. Yeah. Mace Funa. If they have really good seasons, do they decide to go as well? And that does open up more spots. So I, I think Oregon just has to plan like we can't take everybody, but uh, I, I think there's going to be some needed relief just because the chorus of coaches across college football saying like, this is untenable. Um, it, it it needs to be a process of. I think Mario even talked about it himself. Is that there needs to be a a few year process where, okay, we'll let you go above eighty five, but not too far over eighty five for so many years because, I think for the long term prognosis of the game of college football, you're going to see a lot less twenty twenty two kids get signed. I mean, we already saw in twenty twenty one, Bud Elliott two four sevens. Bud Elliott, he's our national recruiting stats guy, I and mean, he's a writer, but he provides amazing stats. 400 less kids signed in the 2021 cycle compared to 2020, which is a huge number. And 2022 is only going to be much worse. So the long-term aspect of not even just college football, but the game of football from high school to the pros, you're going to see a lot less talent get signed and have the opportunity to move up to the next level. Because sure, if kids don't sign Division One, then there's less Division Two spots. There's less Division Three spots. So it goes on and on, and it's going to be a crunch that the NCAA has to figure out. But Short answer, I think Oregon will sign anywhere between 15 and
0: 22. <laughs> Thanks for the short answer. Thanks for keeping it short there, Kevin. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I think the last part there is was really interesting, I hadn't thought about it from those terms of, of the way that, that the roster glut might impact scholarship, you know, signees across the country and how that, how that could impact things going forward. Do you see more kids go Juco and things even out in a couple of years? Do you see more high-end players walk on? Um, I know Oregon just landed a a walk-on from a kid. I think he's from Westview. Was it Jalen Grimble? Um, Yeah. uh, uh, A kid who had like a – he was initially going to go to Western Oregon on a a scholarship or something. Like, I I just – I wonder if you're going to see more high-end walk-ons is is maybe one of my thoughts here because those don't count against the 85.
1: Oregon landed a three-star offensive tackle walk-on out of Portland Jesuit and Charlie Picard, which, I mean, like when he committed, I was like, wait – this is crazy. And he's like, he wrote walk-on in his commitment tweet. I'm like, this is pretty crazy that you're seeing it, but like Washington has done it. Oregon state has a few two-star walk-ons who guys, I think that if they would have played their senior seasons could have easily been three stars. So um, there, there's a lot of good talent that's having to walk on because they know it's their best opportunity to see the field at a high level. So it's gonna, it's going to present some interesting options down the road.
0: All right, let's wrap the show up with this one from at Robbie Parness. What's a better selling point for a recruit—a school historically turning out a lot of NFL products at your position, or a coach that produce, that—that's produced that talent, no matter where they have been? Hashtag #OTs and Audibles. Um, I think it's going to vary per player, and I—I I don't think it. Like, I guess if we're just comparing these two, like, let's do that. But like, I think big picture, these probably aren't as significant of selling points for recruits, period. I think there's probably a lot of things higher on the list. Obviously, it's different per player. But, like, my perspective would be it's probably more impressive to have a coach that's done it than have a school that's done it because you could argue that a position coach is going to – I wouldn't say even argue. I think to me it's pretty self-explanatory that a position coach is going to have a much bigger impact in your development than a school's quote-unquote history of doing something that might not even include – that coach being on the roster. Like, it's one thing for like when Gary Campbell was here, you could say, Hey, like, yeah, Oregon with him at Oregon had developed into a quote unquote running back you. And I hate those terms because they get overused. Every school thinks they're cornerback you and running back you and quarterback you just because they put a couple of guys in the NFL. Like, Oregon had a lot of really good running backs come through the program when Gary Campbell was here. You can't argue that. And so you could sell both of those, right? You could sell Gary Campbell's done it, school's done it. But I don't necessarily think that if you're a running back and you can go to a school that had produced a bunch of running backs two decades ago or a decade ago or five years ago, but doesn't have a very good track record of doing it recently under their current running backs coach that you would pick the school because they've had more guys coming out. Like is, is a, a coach that, or a program that, you know, just to use Oregon as an example of running backs, if you're a running back recruit, are you more impressed with Jim Mastro's ability to produce talent? then you would be that, hey, Oregon had the Michael James and D'Anthony Thomas and Royce Freeman at Oregon like a decade ago. And, like, to me, my like, it would seem pretty logical. that I'm like, I'm a lot more interested in the guy who's there now than I am on, like, the program's perspective from that. Does that make sense, Kevin?
1: Yeah. I I, I think that's actually an, another Oregon-centric way to look at this, and I think this goes for JT allow as well, is are you looking at Tim DeRuiter who coached uh, Vaughn Miller Uh, a decade ago and turned Evan Weaver into a very good linebacker at Cal as well. Or or are you looking at DeForest Buckner, Dion Jordan and Eric Armstead playing at Oregon? I mean, which, which of those two are you more interested in looking at? And I I think it definitely goes to the coach rather than the school. Um, Sure. If the head coach is still around, but he's changed defensive line coach, something like Alabama um, You've seen where that it's just a rotating shuffle of coach, but Nick Staden still there. I think that definitely takes precedence, but um, I think you look at what the coach has done personally more than the school. So I, I think that's just kind of you. You what what can this coach do for me now? Because you know schools can have great legacies at a certain position and then completely stink at that position <laughs> because they made a few bad coaching hires.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And uh, no, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. And, and I think just from like, my perspective on this one, I, I guess before we completely close it out, but it's more like, I'm I'm going to guess for most of these guys, this is pretty low on their, their level of, you know, the list of things that matter is kind of whether or not a school has a history with that position group. I think a position coach though will be near the top of you know and it doesn't even have to be that they produced NFL talent but comfort level from the person that recruited you to the school who's going to coach your position group it it is a I think a really big factor for a lot of these kids and you hear that almost every time you conduct one of these interviews is oh man I really liked the running back coach or even the counter of it was really hard for me to say no to Washington because I really liked their defensive backs coach you know I mean like that type of stuff comes up all the time when you're talking to, to prospects after they've signed in the, in the, in the, and even in the midst of their recruitments.
1: The DBU, the RBU, the QBU even, I, I think that's mostly a fan-driven thing Agreed. rather than a recruit or even player-driven. I think there's some cool history behind that for programs to brag about and say that we're RBU, but I, I don't think when it comes to recruiting, that's a huge um, point of emphasis I, I think it might be a selling point at certain schools but I don't think it's something that they're going to be waving the flag no they're going to be waving what that coach has done and what that more importantly what that coach can do for this individual prospect
0: all right that's going to do it for this week's mailbag podcast thank you to Kevin for filling in for Matt doing a great job talking all things recruiting and thanks for the listener for, for uh, supporting the show by listening go ahead and you can subscribe on whatever uh, podcast application you use. And also thanks for those that submitted questions. I always appreciate that. Use the hashtag Auts and Audibles. It makes it easier for me to find. And we'll be back next week um, for a mailbag episode with Matt being back. And I might have a special guest for a show on Friday. That should be fun. So keep an eye out for when that one drops. Um, should be sometime Friday morning. So for Kevin Wade, this is Eric Scopel. Thank you for listening to the Auts and Audibles podcast. We will talk to you later, folks.